What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rico's Watches podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and I'm joined today by uh, Rob Purdy, who has some pretty cool uh, stories to share with us about his time in the military, about his uh, time in the civilian world driving uh, or flying, I guess, an air ambulance, and uh, just here to chat watches and kind of give us some really cool insights into some of his awesome experiences that he's had over the last uh, several years. How you doing today, Rob? Yeah, doing great, Eric. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I'm a big, big fan of the show and really, uh, really fortunate and blessed to have the opportunity to come on here and and be part of the uh, been been part of the audience for a long time. So to come on here and be a participant, really, uh, that's uh, that's an honor, honor and a privilege. I appreciate it. Hey, man, you know, I really appreciate, but the honor and the privilege is all mine. You've done some incredibly cool stuff. You continue to do some incredibly cool stuff. And I'm just thrilled to be able to sat, sit down and chat with a fan and someone who has so much experience to share with the audience today and has so much cool insight to share. I think it's going to be a really, really great episode. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you making the time to come on here and, and, uh, and chat with me. No, my pleasure. Glad, glad to be here. I am a, I am a novice in the watch community. I am a, a newbie by any measure. Uh, but, uh, but I have been flying helicopters a few days. So if somebody's interested in hearing about that, I could probably talk about that more than I could talk about watches. Although the watches probably interest me more now than helicopters since I've been doing it so long. <laughs> hey, well, we're, we're going to chat about both today. And I think it'll be awesome to kind of get some, uh, you know, to hear some stories and get some insight into what flying helicopters is all about. And then also, um, yeah, the, the watches you wear while you're doing it, because you do have a pretty cool collection with some really awesome pieces in it as well, too. So, but before we kind of get into the, all the nuts and bolts and everything of what we're going to talk about today, what do you have on the wrist? Oh yeah. The wrist today, um, actually got the, the, the vertex M 100 on today with the, with the Zulu alpha invasion stripe straps. Thanks to my, my friend, uh, monkey boy on Instagram. He had a spare and was kind enough to share that with me. That's right on. That's awesome. It's a cool piece. Can you tell me a little bit about that piece? I know vertex, all their models sort of have, um, some sort of military inspiration behind them. Right, right. Well, I, I, I hate. I hesitate to to say I'm I'm friends with Commando Sundials, but I, mm. I feel like I am because I've never met him in person. But he, between him and a, a great guy named Sean Lurwill on on Instagram, they've they've guided me into uh, some of the the British military history oriented mm. watches, uh, Vertex, CWC, learning about the the Dirty Dozen and things like that. So initially, Vertex was was an interest of mine based through those connections anything with a broad arrow on it i'm immediately drawn to anything mm. with history to it a vertex being one of the original dirty dozen watches and then it it died in the quartz crisis in the 1970s so what really interested me beyond that was the fact that mr cochran actually brought the company back as an mm. honor to his grandmother who passed away and ultimately his great-grandfather claude leon when he started the company so any any watch with a history like that, and it has the military look that I like, I was really drawn to that. I was drawn to the company. And this piece in particular, I'm the third owner, I believe. Uh, so the original M100s, most folks probably know, they only had 600 of them. Uh, had to be invitation only, and I believe it was active duty military or had to be a, a veteran. So the first 60 were were sent out, and then each of those 60 people could recommend 10 more to be able to purchase a watch. And I believe this particular watch was purchased by a active duty Air Force captain. Mm. And he then sold it to a special forces group 
gentleman in Okinawa, whose name I won't share because I don't know if he'd be cool with that or not. And then that gentleman got into a M60 Aqualion, also an incredible Vertex piece, if you're familiar with those. Mm -hmm. And then I had the opportunity to purchase this one and I jumped on it and couldn't, couldn't wait to be part of the Vertex family because I had, I had missed the M100 group uh, and to, to be able to find one that was actually for sale and that had some military lineage with it, I uh, was, was all too happy to, to purchase it and make that connection. So that's, that's how I came into this one. Yeah, it's a really cool piece with the, obviously it has the military heritage and then it also has like the military provenance of going through so many military hands on its way to get to your, to yourself. What is it that you find, I guess, so appealing about that piece specifically from like a design perspective? Because I, I have noticed that there seems to be a very unique characteristic that's hard to define when it comes to British watchmaking, particularly mm -hmm. with military pieces. Like, you know, like, like when you look at it at like a Seiko or a citizen, there's something very Japanese about it that you can say that's right. a Japanese watch. Right. And I've noticed exactly what you mean. And I've noticed with like the, the American brands now, whether it's like Sangin or, or Aries or Resco, there's a certain, there's a certain quality about them uh, or a certain design, uh, quality about them that I feel like differentiates it as uniquely American. What is it about British watchmaking for military watches that is just so easy to define them, but makes them so awesome? You know, I think you could go back to one of uh, Don's vertex taglines that he used, which he calls purity of purpose, mm -hmm. just the, the utilitarian purpose of it, the way it was designed. If you look at each one of those dirty dozen watches that were commissioned in 43 by the MOD for use for the war, they, they all look the same because they had very specific manufacturing guidelines they were given. And they're all just the, the fact that it was a no frills design. Hey, I need it to be waterproof. I need it to glow in the dark and I need it to work and be tough. Mm -hmm. So with the, with the vertex piece, particularly the M 100s, I, I like that they've, they've modernized it, but they've retained the heritage and they've retained the utility of it. And all those those particular watches have that same similar look. And um, that that's just, I, I don't know exactly how you would define it other than it's, it's just a, a, a field watch for lack of a better purpose, but it's also accurate. It's also durable. It's waterproof. It's going to last a long time. And it's a piece you can, you can pass down. I feel like that's sort of like, if you were to sort of like apply them to like a character, for example, from like fiction, mm -hmm. all British military watches I know it sounds obviously like it's sort of an easy connection to make, but they sort of remind me of James Bond in a little bit of a way. Like yeah. they're sort they have that like that brutish uh, utilitarianism about them, but they're also mm -hmm. stylish. You know, they also look good, right? It's kind of like one of those things where it, it can, you know, go out in the field and do the work or you can wear it in a tuxedo kind of thing. And I think like Vertex specifically hits that really well where they have, you know, these really tough, well-made designs but they're not going so far as to be like a zin for example right they're sort of they sort of are still something that has a little bit more like conservatism in the design a little bit more style and flair to them where they can they can be worn in an office or worn out to dinner as well too right and i think that right. that's something that's very interesting about british watchmaking and something that i find that's very interesting about uh, vertex designs i think don does a great job with with the pieces that he puts out there and mentioning that um that uh vertex diver as well too that the the aqua was it aqualion i think you called it yeah the M m60 aqualion yeah which is like that's I, next on my list <laughs> i've seen photos of that thing and i gotta say i'm tempted that thing's 
a beautiful, beautiful watch. And, and cost certified, it's a beast. It's a, it's a good looking piece. And that's, yeah. that's another thing that all the vertexes, they tend to be strap monsters. So you mm -hmm. can completely change the personality of the watch quickly with the way they're designed. And like mm -hmm. you said, you can wear it to a formal event and I can just as easily take it out to the flight line and, and work it all day out there. Mm. Right on. That's awesome. It's really, really cool. It's awesome to hear that, you know, you wear your watches at work as well, too. But before we kind of get into the watches in, in your collection, let's kind of talk a little bit about work. Like what, where, let's start at the beginning, I guess. Like, how did you end up becoming a pilot? What was your, what was your career path, I guess, uh, you know, starting out at the very beginning? Yeah, I think most guys with, with a passion for aviation, it starts early. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I grew up in the seventies with, with specific influences and, and TV shows that kind of got me on a path. Uh, black Sheep Squadron was popular here about mm. the, the Black Sheep flying F-4 Corsairs in World War II. I, I, I cut my teeth on that television show and just couldn't get enough of the dog fighting scenes and the uh, World War II aviation. And that segued into every book in my elementary school library. I would check out multiple times and read it. Um, and then as, as that interest in, in military history and military aviation was was blossoming well then star wars hits and mm. i didn't think there was anything as cool at when i was six years old as uh an x-wing cockpit and uh, george lucas's had heavy he had heavy heavy influence uh from the world war ii dogfight videos from the pacific and the european theater theater that he kind of incorporated in some of the dogfighting scenes in star wars so I don't know that I was conscious of that connection at the time, but it, it certainly fed into a, a, a desire to want to be a, a military aviator. I didn't necessarily, I wasn't tied to being a helicopter pilot. I wasn't tired, tied to being a, a jet pilot. I just wanted to be in military aviation. Uh, that also combined with a, an incredibly patient father who recognized that I had an in interest in it. And about every other summer or so, Growing up in Arkansas, we would drive down to uh, the, the Gulf Coast of Florida and sometimes on the eastern coast of Florida and spend a week or two as a family doing different vacation type activities. Well, as you make that drive, you go past Mobile Bay where the battleship Alabama is located. Had a lot of static displays down there. My dad would always take the time to let me climb on those, ask questions, go through them. If you continue down that road, you also go past Pensacola Naval Air Station, you go past Eglin Air Force Base, uh, you go past all these different military installations that had museums, they had displays, and dad would let me stop and, and go through those museums. So this influence just keep, kept growing and growing and growing. And uh, you just continue to look to the skies as a young man. And it, it just, it, it draws your interest in. And that's kind of how it, it, it got started. Uh, you fast forward to getting out of high school. Uh, I was in my, my second year of college and I had gotten really overweight, sloppy. I was working at a machine shop in, in Arkadelphia where I was going to college. And I, I had kind of given up on being a military aviator. I was probably about 230 pounds and not in a good way because I was only five nine. Uh, anyway, I, long story short, I decided to contact a recruiter and I went to a recruiter in Hot Springs, Arkansas and was asking questions about a, a path to, to join the Navy to maybe be a fighter pilot. And the recruiter, he took a look at me and he, he knew I wasn't in the best shape, but no recruiter is going to pass a chance to try to set a hook on somebody. 
so he explained that I, I needed to finish my degree. And at this time I was in my sophomore year of college. He said, you're going to need to finish your degree and you can apply to take this. I don't remember what the name of the test was that I took at Henderson State University where I was going to school in Arkadelphia. And it was aptitude test for Marine Corps and Naval Aviation. Hmm. So I told him I would do that. And I took that test, did okay on it. Uh, but my dad had been laid off at the plant he was working at at Reynolds Aluminum in Malvern, Arkansas, where I grew up. I was paying for my own school. I was working uh, almost full time at the machine shop in Arkadelphia. And I knew that I was going to have to finish my degree to be a part of Naval or Marine Corps Aviation or even the Air Force. So I was looking at my options. And while I was at work, uh, the Army recruiter from the same recruiting office called me and explained to me, hey, what would you say if I told you I could have you in flight school next year? And I said, well, I'd, I'd certainly like to hear how that process goes. Just come back down here, come talk to me. I want to talk to you about the Warrant Officer Flight Training Program. So I did. And I walked in the door. And of course, the first thing he did was tell me how fat I was. Different times, you know, he wasn't worried about it. He said, oh, you're, we've got some work to do if you think you're going to be part of this <laughs> program, which I, I, I wasn't upset. I wasn't offended. I knew I was overweight. Uh, so long story short, I started putting together a warrant officer flight training packet. I had finished my sophomore year. I got some weight off because a picture was part of the process to, to apply to be a warrant officer flight training candidate. And I got all that together and was accepted to go to flight school in 1990 and went to Army flight school in 1991. So what was it like you, you had mentioned you know, you were doing this, this different path with working in the, in the plant there and you were in college and then something kind of drove you to, you know, you sort of given up on the idea of, of being in, in the military aviation and then something sort of drove you to contact the recruiter. Was it sure. top with a top gun coming out or what was top it? Gun was absolutely an influence. Okay. Uh, I, I was still in high school when top gun dropped. I was 16 years old uh, oh, when perfect. it came out, but it was certainly an influence. And then that, and interestingly enough, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm, I'm going to date myself here there. I had a Commodore 64 and a company called Microprose had some really great flight simulators that came out. And one of them was called Gunship and it mm. was an Apache helicopter. I, I, I hate to use the term simulator because if, if you're familiar with late eighties and early nineties video game technology, it's nothing great. Uh, but to me, it was, it was fantastic. And they had, um, like an F-15 game, and then there was an F-117 stealth game, and then, but it was really uh, the gunship game that, that drew me in. So Top Gun, and then combined with, with those games, and then there was also a gentleman from my hometown, uh, a lieutenant colonel named uh, Bill Stevens, that was an Apache helicopter squadron commander, and if you'll remember late 90s, early 91, or not late 90s, late 1990, early 91, Desert Shield, Desert Storm is starting to spin up. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate enough to meet him before that had started. And to have that connection as well, it, it re-energized a desire to try and, and be a part of, of military aviation. Yeah, it's incredible to kind of like, you, you sort of found that that passion again, and you were able to kind of really push yourself into, I guess, like following that path that you was always wanted to be a part of. Like, and I think that's one of those really interesting things about, you know, when you 
especially in those young years, like those are really your pivotal years, right? They're the ones that really will set you on a path for the rest of your life. And, you know, it's such an interesting, um, it's, it's such an interesting kind of story to hear. Like, and it was one that I always just felt like while I was listening to it, I found a lot of parallels between like that and my own story at the time being like in university, knowing I wanted to be in policing since I was a young age and being overweight and having to lose a lot of weight and, and then, you know, kind of giving up on it and then throwing in your packet and talking to your recruiter and like how it kind of sets you off on uh, on that path the rest of your life. It's really interesting to hear that. And it's so cool to kind of hear about the things that were happening at the time in the world and sort of influenced you as well, too. So you you, you put in your packet. It got sent off and it got uh, approved, as it were. So you're going to this warrant officer uh, flight school now, right? What does that look like? What was that process like? What was that training like? It looks it looks a lot different now than it did back in 1991. Uh, so for for me, not having any prior military experience, I I put a packet together that consisted of my flight physical that I was done at Little Rock Air Force Base. It had a black and white photo of me in a really bad fitting suit. Um, like I said, I had dropped from 230. I got down to about 165. Nice. And that was one of the big things with the board. When I went, you had to review in front of a board of, I want to say it was either three, three or four. I know it was mm -hmm. three military officers that questioned you and decided on whether or not you were going to be selected or that your packet would go forward for assessment to be selected. Uh, so did all of that, got it together. Uh, you, at the time I took a, what was called a fast test. It's now called a SIFT. That is the army's version to assess you for aviation aptitude. Got a pretty good score on that. And it all conglomerates into to one big packet that goes to USAREC, which is U.S. Army Recruiting Command. And they decide whether or not you're qualified selected or you're not. And I got qualified selected and notified to report to basic training in January of 1991. So I went through eight weeks of army boot camp in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Had about five days off to drive back to, or actually I got flown back to Arkansas. Got my car, packed a bag, and then went down to Fort Rucker, Alabama, now called Fort Novacell. Um, and started Warrant Officer Candidate School, which was six weeks long of you know ironing your uniform and keeping your shoes shined and getting yelled at and all the things that go along with being warrant officer candidate school and then had about a two-week break for that and then started flight school in the summer of 1991. Pretty nice to do your basic in uh, South Carolina in the winter and not the summer though hey? <laughs> that one that one wasn't too bad it was a lot, <laughs> lot of rainy it was pretty cold out in the field portion of it so uh, it's a, it all builds character. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really, really cool. Yeah, nice. And so so you you got out there, you did your training, you started in that summer uh, of 1991. Mm -hmm. What was what was that training like? Now you're getting into the specialized training element of it, right? So what does that kind of consist of? I know, obviously, that things are, are different now than they would have been back then. But it's so interesting to kind of hear it in the whole historical context of what that training was like at that time. Because also, as you're talking about, like, in 1991, this time frame, again, I wasn't I wasn't born yet, but I'm just trying to do the mental gymnastics of it all. And, and, you know, we're talking about, is this like desert storm type still going on right now? And like yeah, the, the ground war for desert storm actually kicked off. I was on the bayonet range uh, with drill sergeants yelling at me on how to kill people with a, uh, with a giant bayonet on the end mm -hmm. of a rifle. 
And, and they never hesitated to remind us that there was a ground war going on. And regardless of what the army had promised us, any of us could be infantrymen at any one time. We didn't know how, how the war was going to turn out in, mm -hmm. in Iraq and or not uh, in Kuwait. It wasn't mm -hmm. all the way into Iraq at that time. So it, mm -hmm. it was, it's, it's funny to look back on it, but as I went through and got basic training done, it, you know how quick desert desert storm wrapped up. I, I can I was still at Fort Rucker going through warrant officer candidate school when uh, one of the the units that had deployed to desert storm actually came home and mm. we participated in their coming home parade and all that stuff. So that that war wrapped up really quick. So it it was only an, an influence to young privates that were getting yelled at by drill sergeants and basic training at that time. But at the time, at the time you're going through the training, you don't know that it's going to wrap up quickly though. Right. Oh, of course not. Of course so, not. So how did that, how did you find that having that sort of over your head at the time that you're going through training impacted the training or your psychology going through that as well too, knowing that there's a war going on right now while you're training must be different than going through it during peacetime. Right. Uh, not that much because you're so busy when you're mm -hmm. going, but they've got so much training jammed into an eight week time frame. You're every minute of every day is occupied with something and you're just, you're just going day to day trying to get your uh, things accomplished for that evolutions to get onto the next day. Okay. So you, don't, you don't really have time to preoccupy yourself with whether or not you're going to end up as an, as an infantryman. And that, it, that was more of, I think of a, a, a tactic that drill sergeants were using to keep us, keep us motivated. Not so much the infantryman side of it. I just mean like the 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 thinking that I'm going to get out of this training. I'm going to go and get some real experience right away here sort of thing. Right. Well, but I knew that I was flight school was going to take the better part of a year. Okay. So for it to go past that line, I don't think anybody thought Desert Storm was going to go much longer than it did anyway with the way we it was handled. So mm -hmm. I, I didn't. I didn't think I was going to end up coming through the other end of uh, flight school and and turn right around and deploy to a combat theater. Okay. And so, so what was the rest of your training within flight school kind of like, like how did that process look? What does that consist of? You know, you're talking about, you were up to the point of like the bayonet range and the shoe polish and they're screaming at you and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. What, what, what happens next after that? So I finished warrant officer candidate school and then you're, you're still a warrant officer candidate at this time you were the entire time you were in flight school, you were a warrant officer candidate and you were, you were treated that way. And that was okay. I didn't have a problem with that because I've told people before, I, I would have, I would have walked on my hands and broken glass to fly a Cobra at that point. And, and it was, it was a means to an end. If I had to get yelled at, if I had to you know, keep my shirt ironed and keep my hair cut short, I didn't care. I just wanted to fly Cobras. So after you finish warrant officer candidate school, you go through different phases as a warrant officer candidate that coincide with your phases of training in flight school. So you progress with and with those different levels of progression, you get different, more privileges, more freedom as you progress to being a senior warrant officer candidate just prior to graduating, pinning on warrant officer one and getting your wings and leaving flight school. So for the flight school portion in 1991, the Army's primary flight training was the UH-1 Huey. Most people are familiar with that. Vietnam fame. Very reliable single-engine aircraft. So we went through initial entry rotary wing, which is referred to IERW. There's a, a basic phase and then an instrument phase, basic or primary. So primary just consists of two different phases of learning to fly a helicopter. Very, very basic 
maneuvers uh, under visual flight rule conditions. You go to a stage field with a, a highly patient, highly skilled instructor pilot that pretty much babysits you while you figure out how to manipulate the controls of a helicopter. So you go through a, a phase one and a phase two check ride in that aircraft. And then next after that is instruments and you have basic instruments and advanced instruments. And that's learning to fly the same helicopter in the clouds and the way the army wants you to do it. So that's an entirely different phase of training. And each one of these is, I'm trying to remember, I think, I think primary for us was about six weeks. Uh, instruments was about eight weeks. And then I had finished up the instrument phase of training in the Huey probably by about November of 1991. And uh, I hate to keep using the term at this time, but it's, it is different now. Mm -hmm. Back then they had a system called multi-track and multi-track you competed to select the aircraft that you wanted to specialize in for lack of a better term. Mm -hmm. And so many things went into that. Your, your, class scores, uh, your physical fitness test scores, uh, your check ride scores, and it all worked out into an order of merit list on who got to select what aircraft they wanted to fly. And okay. ultimately, it all came down to needs of the Army, because if, if the Army needed 16 Blackhawk pilots and you had 16 guys graduating, well, you were all going to go fly Blackhawks. Mm -hmm. But at this time, the, the tracks at this time were UH-1 uh, Huey, UH-60 Blackhawk, uh, OH-58 Kiowa, and AH-1 Cobra. Well, I had, I, I wanted to be a Cobra pilot more than anything in the world. I wanted to be a Cobra pilot at that time. What is the Cobra? If you could kind of just explain what differentiates so, that from the other helicopters Cobra, you mentioned. Cobra's the grandfather of all attack helicopters right now. It was essentially, a, it was developed from the, the Charlie model gunship, the UH-1 Huey in Vietnam, Bell took that drivetrain and put it into a, a purpose-built tandem seat where you sit one behind the other fuselage that was specifically built to perform the close air support role in Vietnam that the Huey was already done doing. Mm -hmm. But a, a Huey was a, a troop transport that a lot of innovative kids were strapping guns and rockets onto it and using it to support guys on the ground. So the army decided, Hey, we need something that's specifically built to support guys on the ground. And the result of that was the Cobra. Is that uh, like the smaller helicopter with sort of the wings on the sides? You always see all the missiles on. Correct. Correct. It's a, it's a, it's a real skinny Cobra or a skinny fuselage. It has stub wings on the side and then you have individual wing pylons and then at this time, it had a chin-mounted turret. It had a, a 7.62 and a 40-millimeter grenade launcher that was controlled primarily from the front seat. And then you had rocket pods at this time mounted on the uh, on the wing stores. Now, the Cobra, like anything else in the Army, they're going to get service life out of it. It evolved over the years. And the one I was flying was a Fox model Cobra. Better engine, better transmission, better rotor blades, more armament, had a 20 millimeter cannon by this time and had a tow missile capability and inboard 19 shot rocket pods. So that was the, that was the model of Cobra that I was blessed to fly up until 1996 when I transitioned to the Apache. A lot of freedom in that helicopter. That's wicked. <laughs> that's a, that's a very, very cool machine you just described there. So you, so you, you get through 
your training and they basically start to decide where they're going to start sending people based somewhat on what they, they would like and, and their scores, but, but also kind of based on needs. So you, based on your scores, based on your performance and on the military's needs, you were able to actually get into a Cobra right away. I was not, I was not number one on my list. I won't tell any stories on that. I was above average in my class, but most of this, the senior guys that were above me, at back then, Korea had three attack battalions, and there was a lot of turnover in Korea. And almost everybody graduating Army flight school as a Cobra guy was immediately going to Korea. Mm. And like I said earlier, I didn't care. I just wanted to fly Cobras. If I had to go spend a year in Korea, no problem. Uh, so some of the very top guys in our class, they weren't interested in flying Cobras because they didn't want to go to Korea and they were more interested in something a little more advanced at the time, which was the UH-60 Blackhawk. Mm. So there were a lot of factors involved that were driving people's individual preferences for what airframe they selected. But I was able to get into the Cobra. And with that came a, my, my first duty assignment was a year in Korea after I graduated. So I was I was thrilled. I didn't care where I was going as long as I was going to be flying an AH-1. And so what was that like? So you get you get your deployment orders. You're going out to, to Korea. Mm -hmm. You get to Korea. What is that like? What is it like living in Korea for a year? And what are you doing while you're there? Like you talk, I, like, wouldn't, uh, like, I wouldn't call it a de deployment. It was just it, sorry, it was yeah. hardship tour. It's, yeah. a, it's a year long OCONUS tour as a as a new Cobra pilot like any new job, you just, you keep your mouth shut. You try to listen to the right people and you try to learn your craft from, from an in incredible group of uh, mentors that take you under their wing and, and teach you how to do the business because it's anything, any academy, any school, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a license to learn. Right. And yeah. that that's what flight school was. And I think that it, the more you understood that, Hey, it's, you haven't finished anything. You're just getting started. And that's mm -hmm. what flight school was for all of us at that time. So, and then by the time I got to, to Korea and in, integrated into my first unit, you go through what's called a readiness level progression. So even though you've just finished flight school, now you've got to, you've got to prove that you know what you're doing in the machine. So, and the, the army has instructor pilots that are assigned to the units that their additional duty is to, to train new aviators and to do check rides on aviators that were within the company. So I went through RL progression, uh, later on became a, a pilot in command and spent my, my first year as a Cobra pilot in, in Korea. And that was a it, it, good, good way to learn your craft. So your day to day when you're, when you're, there in Korea is really just training, practicing, getting better and better at what you're doing. I'm assuming there's an element of like maintenance and taking care of the machines as well, too. Sure, sure. And warrant officers have younger warrant officers assign additional duties, just like anybody in the military. You're 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 a pilot, but you're also responsible for you know physical security. You may be mm -hmm. responsible for keeping the company's key control program online or the uh, NBC gear or whatever you're going to do day to day outside of flying. But in addition to that, and in Korea, we would go to the field probably about once a month, spend a week or two out in the field, flying missions, planning missions, you know, all, all training, of course, nothing live fire. And then about twice a year, you would go to the gunnery range where you do a gunnery qualifications in the machine and go out and fly different gunnery tables where you're evaluated time to make sure you're, you're doing it in a timely manner, accuracy. So that all, 
that all conglomerate comes together in your year of an army aviator train training events gunnery events and then in amongst that you're doing all the day-to-day -day tasks that the army requires you to do as well whether it's go shoot your personally assigned weapon uh go go to the gas chamber and make sure you know how to use your gas mask and uh, you know how to how to set up a tent mm -hmm. <laughs> things like that and so what happens after korea for you after korea I was assigned to Fort Hood, Texas, uh, still in the in the Cobra. Now I had asked for an Apache transition leaving Korea, and I didn't end up getting it because normally when when you permanent change of station or a PCS move, when when you leave Korea, the Army tries to align schools in conjunction with moves because your life's in an uproar anyway. So why not send you to school before you get to your next duty station? So I had asked to go to the 64 course, uh, was not able to get the 64 course. I was upset at the time because a lot of my friends were going to the Apache already because we knew the Cobra was getting phased out. This was, mm. this was 1993. Uh, the Cobra was looking at probably another three or four years before it was going to be completely replaced by the Apache. Mm. So there was a, there was a sense of urgency amongst the Cobra pilots to get into an advanced airframe. Anyway, I was upset that I didn't get assigned or I did not pick up the Apache course leaving Korea, but it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because I ended up spending three more years in a division cavalry squadron at Fort Hood, Texas, still flying the Cobra and uh, still able to spend more time with, with senior guys that, were, were good mentors to me and able to, to show me what right looks like and to continue to, to build aviation skills in a, in a power challenged older aircraft before I got spoiled in an Apache. Okay. And so after those three years you, and you started to move into, you did move into an Apache. What was that like? What were some of the big differences between the Cobra and the Apache and how did you find that transition went going from one frame to another? Sure. Sure. Yeah. The, the Apache people ask me, well, what did you like? You like flying Cobras better? Or you like flying Apache? And I, I give them the example. I said, well, do you like driving a 63 Corvette or do you like driving a 2005 BMW M5? You know, different technologies, different timeframes. Uh, the, the Apache, now you're talking about four blades, dual engine, tons of power, um, more heavily armed, faster. Hmm. So definitely an upgrade but it doesn't mean that you you, you forget your first love so that at the, 1996 when i came up on uh time to leave fort hood i was able to get the apache course <laughs> but it it came with another year in korea mm. it's, it's, hey what are you going to do for me yeah i'll send you to the apache school but are you, are you willing to go to korea yep i'll do it so i got i got orders to go to the apache course and then that came with another tour in Korea again, which is, is really a blessing because it, it, Korea at that time was the best place to learn your craft because this was before global war on terror had kicked off and units in Korea were probably flying more hours, higher op tempo, more training, more opportunities to really learn your craft than units that are stateside. Mm. So the Apache course, I, summer of 1996, went through that at Fort Rucker again, Fort Novosel. And then went back to Korea to Camp Humphreys with 3-6 CAV. So that, that was my first Apache unit. And what was it about Korea versus being stateside that that just seemed to 
allow guys to get more action and more time uh, behind the actual or in the actual machines. Well, the maintenance support and the flying hour budgets are bigger in Korea because it's a real world mission. Mm-hmm. It's it's you've got the the DMZ to the north. North Korea is a, a real world threat. Uh, you're you're supporting different training activities that are going on in South Korea. Uh, they had had new aircraft over there. It was it was a good. It, it was another year in Korea, but at the same time, it was good. It was good to be there, and it was a, it was a great opportunity to to learn the Apache and all the the differences in it. Mm-hmm. So you, you mentioned the the global war on terror. Mm-hmm. How did that change things for you in your career? What happened at that point for you? Oh, well, I, I think it, it changed the world. Um, I was, when, when 9-11 happened, I was back at Fort Rucker. At, at the time, my, ba- my, my assignment was Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah, Georgia. And I had become an instructor pilot on the Apache by then. So I was back at Fort Rucker for the instrument examiner's course, which is a course that teaches you how to evaluate instruments for the army and how to become an instrument instructor. And I was in the simulator when the the first plane hit the, hit the first tower. And like most people, I think everybody realized they thought it was just, okay, well, this is some horrible aviation accident, you know, right up to the time where the second plane hit the second tower and then the, the console operator at that, hey, I'm going to go ahead and put you guys on freeze. I'm going to bring you off motion because the, the simulator does all kinds of different things. So we, we got something going on. Uh, we're going to bring you guys down. And there was a, a television mounted in the quarter, corner of the classroom that we used every morning. And like everybody else in the world, we're just watching wide-eyed as the nation is attacked and the towers fall and... Uh, yeah, that, those are those are those are dark days. But I, I can remember sitting there with my, my my arms folded, watching this. And our instructors, almost to the man, were were grizzled Vietnam veterans. They had they had done numerous tours in Vietnam. A lot of them had been shot down. Some of them had been POWs. And I can remember that one of the instructors sitting next to me with his arms folded, and he's he spits his. <laughs> in his dip cup and he just looks over at me and he says, pack your bags. And I'll, I'll never forget that because I mean, he was right. He was right because I got back to, to Savannah after or Hunter army airfield after that school and the, the world and the army had literally changed. Uh, we had Ranger units and Chinook units that started leaving Hunter army airfield uh, late 2001 to support Anaconda, which kicked off in Afghanistan in 2002. Uh, and then just that that pace and mindset as an Army aviator, uh, it, it was almost year, year deployed, two years off. And I say off, I, off is home. But when you're home, you're still training, you're still going to gunnery, you're still going to combat center rotations, doing training. And and two is probably generous. Anyway, life became a year deployed and about a year and a half stateside before you were deployed again. So that was the big change with, with 9-11 and when the global war on terror started, because there just there was no appetite suppressant for army aviation in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and it, it became a it became a grueling cycle for both aircraft and people to maintain the pace that we ultimately did for almost 20 years. So let's talk about 
that role that you're fulfilling now in Afghanistan? And did you make it to Iraq as well, or were you primarily in Afghanistan? I was op- opening shots of Iraq. Uh, okay. Our, our unit, 1-3 one, one, attack from Hunter Army Airfield, Georgia, was part of 3rd Infantry Division. And we were notified for deployment. But before that, I did a six-month deployment in Kuwait in 2002. Uh, and this was, Af- Afghanistan was already hot and heavy with Af- Anaconda and uh, some units from the 101st with their Apaches over there. And the 160th was doing operations over there. And we would actually see them coming in and out of Kuwait because we knew the, the op tempo over there was so high. Well, we had deployed... Our company had deployed to Kuwait for six months to train with one of the infantry brigades from 3rd Infantry Division. And at this time, we had recently acquired uh, Longbow Apache helicopters with fire control radar. So the division wanted to do some different training evolutions with some of our supported ground brigades. They had... Bradley fighting vehicles. They had M1A2 Abrams tanks, uh, and they wanted us to to see, you know, what what these tanks were going to look like under fire control radar. How are we going to work together? What were the some of the advantages to the longbow going to provide for us? And nobody would come out and say that we were invading Iraq, but the the writing was on the wall for so long. Uh, we we figured we would be back over there pretty soon, and in January of 2003, we were notified for deployment to go to uh, Kuwait at the time, but we knew that Iraq was coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the initial invasion into Iraq, uh, gosh, I don't even remember what, it was either February, March? I don't remember, but we were on that. We had we had two attack helicopter companies that supported uh, the, the border mission to where we flew from Camp Udari, it's now called Camp Buring in Kuwait. We flew two companies of helicopters up to the Kuwait border and the Iraqis had observation posts mm-hmm. that we were going to uh, hit with artillery. And then we were going to hit with organic Apache fires to open up movement corridors for the subsequent ground forces that were going to come through there. So that was, that was my initial uh, taste of combat in 2003. So you mentioned Afghanistan first, then mm-hmm. kind of Kuwait and then, and then Iraq. So can you expand on what the role was now of the day-to-day life for you and, and the role you're filling in the, in the army at that point in time? Like now we're at a point where you're at war, right? Sure. You're, you're not sure. training. You're not, you're not kind of PCSing around things like that. Like you mentioned, like you're, you're at war and you're in a theater of war. What does that look like for you now? And what are some okay. of those experiences that you had um, in Afghanistan? And then I guess we'll do Iraq uh, after that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't do an Afghanistan tour until 2005. My my first Afghanistan tour was 2005 to 2006. Okay, so Iraq came first, then. Iraq was my first combat. Iraq okay. OIF one Operation Iraqi Freedom one, which at the time was Enduring Freedom. They didn't change it till Iraqi Freedom until later on. But my my first combat was in in 2003 uh, when we did the invasion into Iraq. Okay, so what did that look like, and what was sort of that role, and what were the experiences you had over there at that point? Yeah, I was I was a company instructor pilot. As as a warrant officer, you you have different tracks as as, as an army warrant officer, and you can be a a maintenance guy, or mm-hmm. you're responsible as a maintenance test pilot for keeping the aircraft and the machines going. Uh, you can be an instructor pilot, 
And as an instructor pilot, you're just responsible for tracking everybody's um, night vision system currency. You're responsible for developing gunnery tables. Uh, you're responsible for doing uh, progressions, just like when I was a new pilot and I talked about going into Korea and going through RL progression. As an instructor pilot, now you're doing those uh, training flights. You're doing those evaluations with new aviators. And you're also responsible for sustainment training for different aviators in the company. So I was an instructor pilot. And then the other track was uh, safety officer. And as an aviation safety officer, it just, hey, making sure people are drinking water, making sure they're wearing helmets, making sure they're wearing ear protection. Uh, you're the one that makes sure that we're not shooting at each other on the range. And mm -hmm. I know that's a, <laughs> that's a literal term, but you're, you're just responsible for aviation safety. Uh, so I was an instructor pilot by this time. And when you deploy into theater, a, a lot of those additional duties, they become you know, secondary to whatever the company or the battalion's role is in the bigger scheme of maneuver. So for Iraq, once when we were in Kuwait, as an instructor, I'm doing uh, sand and dust landings. Uh, we're going out and we're making sure people are familiar with flying helicopters, that they're a lot are, are much heavier than they're used to flying because now we're we're carrying more fuel. We're carrying armament. Uh, it's super hot. So the, the helicopters become performance challenged in hot, heavy conditions. So for the train up for the invasion of Iraq, we spent a lot of time training those types of things with our with our pilots in order to try to prepare them for what was coming for the invasion. So once the invasion started, as we're moving towards, because Baghdad International Airport was our objective. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're, we're hopping from assembly area to assembly area while we're supporting ground elements that are behind us or on our flank. Sometimes they would get ahead of us. You know, whatever those aircraft, whatever those elements need, reconnaissance, direct fire support, whatever that, whatever that need is, that's what we're there to support. So is that like when you're saying you're you're supporting ground elements? Is that uh like Humvee convoys? Is that foot troops doing clearing from house to house, or what does that look like? For, for Third Infantry Division, it was it, essentially mech infantry. They're they're guys in in M1A2 Abrams tanks. They're in mm -hmm. infantry fighting vehicles. They're in Bradley fighting vehicles. Uh, there there's an, a Humvee element to it, uh, but you're just you're supporting their formations as they move forward and as we move to secure Baghdad International Airport. And so what are like those principles of attack management when you're providing combat support from an Apache? I don't, I don't think I understand the question. Like, like, so like if you're, if you're like, so now you're, you're describing, you know, you're, you're making this, this, uh, the goal is to get to Baghdad international, mm -hmm. right. To take that over, but you have to fight your way there. Correct. Correct. Right. So what is your role in combat and, and sort of like, how, what are those principles that you're, you're having to keep in mind and how are you managing your role in that combat right because i mean it's not just like you're shooting around other you're sure you're shooting around friendly targets like it's different when you're on the ground versus shooting down from the sky right and i know you're not like you're not like way 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 up there like like if you're in a fighter jet or something like that but if you're you know you're you're still up in the air and you have to be a lot more careful i would assume about the rounds you're, you're laying down where they're landing that like uh like the danger close type stuff and things like that so sure, what is that sure. what is that like for you to have to manage that do you have a sort of a different view on combat from right. even, well, going back to your basic training where you were trained as a foot soldier to how you have to do fight you have to do combat now as a pilot okay well 
when when you incorporate aviation into it, you know, you're, you're given you're given the supported ground commander, the third dimension. So with with radios and sensor packages, you can see a lot further than he can. You can paint in a more accurate picture for him. So I, I tell people a lot in, in attack aviation, your your eyes and your radio are probably just as important, if not more important than your guns, rockets and missiles. Because you're painting that supported ground commander a more accurate picture, and that was the primary roles that we were doing. Is usually we're in we're in front of those formations as they advance forward, um, checking out for for pockets of resistance. If if they get in contact, now you're a QRF force responsible for for helping them uh, get through the contact or neutralize the threat. So you're you're in a supporting role and it, I, army aviation is a support role. Are, are, are we direct fire? Yes. Uh, but we, we exist to support the ground maneuver element. Um, so that's what that looks like from a reconnaissance role to a direct fire role. Uh, later on Iraq and Afghanistan, both they, they transitioned into more of a presence role. So, cause we had so many ground elements out at all times uh, you would have you would try to have an AWT, an air weapons team, up just in a position to be able to react to contact, um, and also providing different reconnaissance back to the the same the central hubs that were located in different areas of the country. Uh, but this, I say this, Iraq in two thousand two thousand three was very much a deliberate op with defined goals. Mm-hmm. And and for us and for Third Infantry Division, it was to advance up the west side and secure Baghdad International Airport, whereas the Marines were on the east side heading to the same objective. So your your roles change as the mission changes. And for us during Iraq, it was a direct fire role. It was a reconnaissance role and whatever that ground commander needed. And and during this combat role that you or the the support role with combat that you're fulfilling, what are some of the biggest hazards that were present to you or to other helicopter pilots at this time? Like, you know, they, they didn't were you at the initial point of the invasion, were there other helicopters from the enemy side you had to be concerned with? I know RPGs were a big thing. Like, where is that is that more like what you're dealing with or like the small arms or the manned, uh the manned like RPG type things, or was there any sort of uh, significant, uh, larger mechanized threat from the enemy that you had to be aware of when yeah, but, operating. early, early on, there was a fair amount of, of air defense artillery, S 60 guns, um, heavier machine guns. And then there, there was never an air air threat for us. I never, I never had a, a man pad or a man portable air defense missile launched at me that I know of. And that could be a good thing. Uh, but early on, as we were advancing and Iraq, the Iraqi army had more of their capabilities still intact, we saw a, a fair amount of um, heavy machine gun fire, uh, directed air defense gunfire. I don't I don't ever remember any any missiles being fired at me. Uh, certainly an RPG threat. And then as more and more of that is neutralized. It, it it developed more into a, a guerrilla war with a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of small arms fire, a, a lot of um, unguided rockets that they would use in a guided capability, whether it's shooting it out of a, an empty metal tube or whatever the case may be. They, they became 
they became smarter and smarter. Uh, but mostly RPGs, small arms fire, and and directed ambushes for helicopters because sometimes if you fly the same route, same altitude, day in, day out, uh, they got really good at setting up helicopter ambushes to where they would have a lot of directed small arms fire, and you know sometimes they would get lucky. Mm -hmm. And so you you were going back to talk about this mission to take. Uh, Baghdad International, you know, as you're progressing through through the city and, and getting towards there, what did the rest of that sort of mission look like for you? So once we got to Baghdad, we, when we crossed the Euphrates, that was a, there was a bridge called Objective Peach, and I don't know the exact name of the, of the bridge. Uh, that was kind of the last push before we got into Baghdad itself. So once we occupied Baghdad International Airport, as we crossed the fence, there's still a fight actually going on with some of the elements that were there before us. After we secure Baghdad International Airport, uh, then you can read in about, and some of the books talk about the uh, the 3rd Infantry Division doing thunder runs mm. into the city. So we we initially based out of Baghdad International, and we, we start doing these um, runs into Baghdad itself with armored vehicles, with Bradley fighting vehicles, and as the, the elements were, were going into the city, we would try to provide air cover and air support when they had to react to contact out of Baghdad International Airport. So now it, it developed more into a sustainment operation then as Iraq was not the, the cleanest occupation, <laughs> as, as everybody remembers. And as we were deciding, of, OK, we're here. Now, what do we do? Uh, what's it going to look like and helping the Iraqis get new government established and whatever the case may be. But it's, at that at that time, we were just supporting out of Baghdad International Airport as the ground elements were pushing further and further into Baghdad and, and trying to get that secured. Mm. That sounds really that's, I mean, it sounds like a very um, it's very dynamic Thing. I was going to say chaotic, but dynamic is a much more also chaotic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that, that, that's, that's, it does sound very dynamic. And like, it really got to kind of put a lot of those skills that you've been practicing and training for up to that point to, to, to the test. And probably it was, a, it was an awesome learning uh, opportunity as well too, because it, it seeing or putting those skills to the test and practical application probably looked different than in a training environment as well too. Yeah. Never, we got good, at training for urban environments later on. But mm -hmm. at that point in my life, I had nothing had prepared me for, I mean, it's like fighting in downtown Los Angeles. I mean, yeah. the, the amount of buildings and places for people to hide and uh, you just, you didn't know what to expect. So, so fighting an attack helicopter in an urban environment was, was very new to me in 2003. It's sort of, I guess, like the training that you had was based on the previous war right? All the, all the new training comes from, oh, the newest training only comes from the last engagement that you guys basically had, right? The, the army seems to be masters of, of fighting and preparing for the last war it fought. Mm -hmm. So growing up as a young attack helicopter pilot, I, I spent, I don't know how many hours training to how to defeat large uh, Soviet armor formations mm. coming through Eastern Europe, invading Western Europe. That seemed to be our, our main focus. Uh, and we, we very quickly shifted to more of a, uh, a counterinsurgency urban operations type of fight in Iraq. At least with like being trained uh, to fight against Soviet materiel as, as it were, right? You, 
were at least somewhat familiar with what you were dealing with when it came to dealing with the Iraqis, because most of their their hardware was was old Soviet stuff from the Cold War. Right. Yeah, so. absolutely. They're the the tanks, the air defense systems, the the directed air defense systems that we expected and encountered were the same threat systems that we had kind of prepared for for years in a uh, uh, Eastern Europe full to gap scenario that we thought we were going to face from the Soviets for years. Mm. And so you were in Af or in uh, Iraq until 2005. You said that's when you moved over to Afghanistan. So what precipitated that, uh, I guess, move over to Afghanistan and what was different about Afghanistan from Iraq for you? Well, our, our Iraq deployment for our battalion ended in summer of 2003. So we had deployed in January of 2003, done the invasion, and ended up redeploying in July, August of 2003. Well, out, outside of all these uh, Army operations that are going on with the global war on terror, the regular Army keeps going on. So it was time mm. for me to move to a different unit. And this unit was 2-6 CAV, which was going to be based in Germany. Okay. So I, I left Hunter Army Airfield after I got back from Iraq. I left Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, got assigned a 2-6 CAV, which was getting the longbow attack helicopter. And that unit I got to in Germany in 2004. And then we were activated for deployment to Afghanistan in March of 2005. So that's how I ended up going to Afghanistan on my, my first Afghanistan tour. Okay. And so what was different about Afghanistan from Iraq or what was the either in the combat or in the role you kind of filled there? Uh, Afghanistan for us, it was, I, I wouldn't call it a mature theater, but by 2000, March of 2005, we had already had a presence on the ground for the better part of three to four years. Mm -hmm. So Bagram had quite a bit of infrastructure established. Uh, I ended up going to Fob Salerno, which was in the Coast Bowl with our uh, task force that was down there. And at, at, at this time, there, there were there were not it wasn't a direct operation. And we, we were in Afghanistan. The, the Taliban was, quote unquote, defeated. Um, and we were already transitioning into we're still a lot of kinetic operations trying to uh, defeat al-Qaeda, trying to defeat the Taliban remnants that were still around, uh, trying to defeat an insurgency. But it Afghanistan had already shifted into, okay, we're going to stand up a, an, an American-friendly Afghan government. And the, the focus was becoming more on trying to provide security for the Afghan people to establish their own country, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of reconnaissance work, a lot of uh, reacting to contact, a lot of uh, QRF, quick reaction force. So 24-7, 365, we've got two attack helicopters either in the air or ready to go in the event that somebody in our footprint comes in contact. Um, I think, yeah, Commando Sundials, when he talked about some of his foot patrols down in Hellman and the things that the Royal Marine Commandos were doing, that is... That it was a, a an incredibly clear picture of day to day operations for uh, a, a foot soldier in Afghanistan, and we were there to support him. And he actually mentioned, you know, some of the British Apaches supporting their operations down in Herrick and the Jagroom Fort and uh, things that were going on down there in Helmand. Uh, so that's 
that's what that looks like. You have a deliberate operation that comes around maybe every week or two, but for the most part, you're providing a quick reaction force and you're providing an, an air presence to support a, a ground force that is out doing the things that uh, he described in his podcast. Would there be a lot of, and one of the things we didn't really touch on, but it sort of helps with the transition into talking about what you, your, your civilian work would be, what about like medevac, for example? Is that something that would fall within the purview of what you were doing in theater or is all, that? All the time. Okay. So what, what does that look like? What, what is it like having to, to undertake a, a medevac into like a hot zone, for example, and pull someone out? Like I can't imagine anything more stressful than that. Well, you know, medevac by design, they're 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 unarmed because that's why they get to have the big red and white crosses painted on themselves. Uh, so, a, a lot of times, if you had um, a force on the ground come in contact and they had casualties, our we would always fly with the medevac as an armed escort and cover them to provide LZ security, uh, make make sure that the the landing zone is either cherry or ice, ice being cold, good to land in, cherry, hey, it's still hot, let us service the target before you're going to go in there and land. Uh, so a lot of medevac security as an Apache guy in that theater, because they, they um, the, the war was still going on then for sure. And it, the, for some reason, Iraq was getting so much attention in the 2005, 2006 timeframe uh, I was surprised at the number of people that didn't realize how kinetic Afghanistan still was then. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, I shot probably more my year in Afghanistan than I did in the Iraq invasion in 2003. Uh, it just didn't get a lot of attention because Iraq seemed to be the, the media focus at that time. Uh, but, but to answer your question, you're, you're always supporting, you, you've got a team of two ready to support, and it's part of that QRF role. If, if medevac has to launch, Hey, medevac's going to fob whatever to pick up whatever you guys need to go with them. Yep, Roger that. Um, so that's that's what we would do. Hmm. I mean, that sounds. I, again, like I'm trying to. You, you only ever see like for for me on you know the non-military side, like all you ever really get to see is like in movies like Black Hawk Down and things like that, right? Like you don't really get right. to you don't really get to talk to someone like yourself and kind of get the firsthand uh, explanation of how these things roll. But it sounds um very uh like at, by this point like you kind of said it was a more mature theater in a certain in a certain way but also for you guys as well too having now fought in in iraq and then coming over to afghanistan like you were had a much more uh mature understanding of i guess your day-to-day -day role in that specific theater of war like when we when we allude or previous Previously, we alluded to sort of like how the army is really good at mastering fighting the previous war. Now, yeah. at this point, there's enough experience under everyone's belt, having been there for several years, that now you're really established in your role fighting in the current war. And, and there's sort of that like confidence that kind of comes with that of like now knowing what you're doing. Did you find that by the time you were in Afghanistan and when you were starting to get to the end of your time in Afghanistan, that... Um, you had really sort of mastered this type of different fighting that you were doing compared to what you'd been trained for up to that point? I, I wouldn't say master. I, that's a strong word. You, you become more familiar with it. And I, it, it's, it's, it's more visceral because I can remember uh, on, on one instance, th these are guys you, you share the chow hall with on the fob, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're, you know them. And as they go out on these patrols, uh, you know, they, they hit an IED and then you get the radio call for the medevac to go support them. And 
you know, hey, whatever unit hit an IED outside of FOB Organ E. Um, okay, well, who got hit? And it, it's uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? It's just it's just at this I, I didn't I wasn't as familiar with the units I was supporting in in Iraq as I was in Afghanistan because you're sharing the FOB with them. You're you you see them in the laundry room. You see them in the gym. Mm -hmm. um, so. At, at this time, you're we're, we're still kind of what 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 do what do our ruling rules of engagement look like? What does our um, what's the ultimate mission here? Uh, so all that's still being established. So to to go back to had 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 we mastered it, no, uh, but was certainly more comfortable, and we're getting more familiar with what was expected of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. What I guess did the rest of your time uh, on the war on terror look like, and um, what I guess if you could maybe think of one or two of your most memorable moments during that kind of period uh, for you, what were if you that you wouldn't mind sharing? Yeah, sure. I mean, I I ended up doing uh, two Iraq tours. I did three Afghanistan tours. Um, my last tour in Afghanistan was in uh, two thousand thirteen. It's one of the things I started to describe that when I was talking about uh, that, that was we, we were supporting a, a special forces ODA team and we had gotten familiar with those guys because they, they had a kind of an outpost, kind of an Alamo, if you will, established at a fob called Shkin, S-H-K-I-N. And we had developed a habitual relationship with those guys as they would go out on patrol. We would be in a position to support them if they came into contact um, and then go back to, to being on QRF back at FOB Salerno, we got a call for medevac support and, and that same ODA team had, had a vehicle hit in, in IED out, out in, uh, close to skin. So we had to go pick up, you, you know, you end up, you know, the guy that just lost his leg. Uh, you 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 remember him from doing operations with him. You remember him from doing sitting down with a dry erase board and diagramming what their plan of that day was, and uh, certainly things like that sit with you. Um, on September 11th of all days in 2005, on, on Afghanistan was having elections, and we had a an AWT that was out that day. Um, and CJTF-76, which was our command element at that time from Bagram, they were very specific that they didn't, they didn't want a lot of um, kinetic activity going on that day. They just wanted the elections because we were trying to paint a, a peaceful, successful election picture for the country and for uh, the outside world as these historic elections were going on in 2005. Well, we were out in an AWT team of two and we had one of our uh, ground elements come in contact that was in the vicinity of uh, border B BCPs. We called them BCPs. They were border checkpoints that we had different elements at. We, so I think it was BCP five. We had an element come in contact and they were asking for, for fire support. Well, our, our headquarters, well, well, we need to let the situation develop. We need to be careful about, sending you guys down there. I'm like, Hey, do you understand these guys are in contact? Mm -hmm. Yes, we understand. Go ahead and return. Uh, come back here to, to Salerno, rearm, refuel. Well, I didn't need to rearm cause I hadn't shot anything, but 
that was a, a high level of frustration to know that you're in a position to help, mm-hmm. but you're being hamstrung in your support because of a picture that an external element that's not there is trying to paint, if that makes sense. So they were, you, you, you knew guys were in, in contact, they were under fire and you were in a position to help, but we were being slowed in that process because of the elections that were going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was pretty frustrating. Uh, and then, uh, gosh, you, you have so many engagements over the years, different ones. Certainly the first time I was shot at was, <laughs> was surreal. We were at, uh, this was in Iraq and we were securing, it was called EA Firebirds. EA is engagement area. Uh, and on a map, it's Talil Air Base. It was an Iraqi air base. So obviously they had some air defense established already, but as we were trying to move in and to to secure that area, you, I, w- I ended up taking some fire from an S-60 gun. Uh, and these, these huge fireballs that are coming at you, it's, it's just almost if you've never seen it before and you've never experienced it, it's, it's very surreal to know that, Hey, that's somebody's, somebody's trying to shoot at us. And I, my, my front seater at the time was a, a, a great, great friend of mine, uh, Nick Demona and Nick, Nick and I had trained together in Savannah. Uh, he, he came and as a new pilot and I, I did his, his RL progression as an instructor pilot, but we were crewed up for the invasion in Iraq and we were in the same aircraft and and Nick says, "Hey man, I I think they're shooting at us." <laughs> and I just remember saying, "Well, fuck, shoot back!" <laughs> <laughs> but I I was just as dumbfounded as he was. I was like, "Man, those sons of bitches are actually firing at us!" And, and I I think I, I I had some other words. So they don't don't tell me about it. Shoot back. <laughs> That's awesome. So what I guess like what would be one of your biggest wins or your proudest accomplishments while you were over there that you got to be a part of, whether it was supporting a mission, it was a personal interaction you got to have a situation that was one of those like shit hit the fan situations that you were able to be a part of and turn it out all right in the end. As a, as a task force instructor pilot that is, is kind of responsible for, you know, how safely and how successfully a task force employs their helicopters. In, in 2005, 2006, the, the task force that I was kind of responsible for, we didn't have a single, single aircraft accident. Mm. We didn't have a single aircraft incident. We had, you know, no, we had some aircraft that were, were shot up, mm. uh, but we didn't, we didn't lose any due to pilot error. We didn't lose any due to, you know, something stupid that we did. So that was that was a point of pride for me because the other task forces that had split up on that deployment could not say that. You know, we had one aircraft that um, that that crashed into East River Range outside of Bagram doing a training event. Uh, we had another aircraft down outside of Kandahar that was goofing off, taking pictures for a Chinook, and ended up crashing into into terrain. Um, and our task force just didn't have any of that dumb stuff. And I, I, we, we were incredibly proud that we went down there for an entire year. All of us new to the Afghanistan theater, all of us flying uh, challenging environments. And we didn't, we didn't even have so much as an, an over torque to where we caused maintenance damage being a stupid pilot. Uh, 
Mm. So that, that was a point of pride. Um, and then by the time I deployed to Afghanistan in 2013, I was a, a chief warrant officer five and I was part of a, a brigade command team. And the sim similar situation through, through a lot of efforts of a lot of great people, that, that task force didn't lose a single aircraft, didn't lose a single person uh, based on pilot error, or doing something stupid. We had an incredibly effective rotation, uh, at least for what we were to do the, that year was there. Af Afghanistan didn't turn out the way I would like to have seen it turn out. Mm. Uh, but those were, those were both points of pride. And then to be a part of the invasion in Iraq, um, those were, those were historic times. I don't, I don't know how that I necessarily agree with, with what happened in Iraq and how long we were there and what the reasons for it were, but to, to be a part of it was uh, de definitely historic. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's the experience alone, right? Regardless of the reason for it, it was, is, you know, something that not a lot of people got to have. Right. And you know, especially well, from, your, from your perspective in the helicopter, right? I think, and, and ultimately, regardless of how you look at it, Iraq or Afghanistan, you're, you're sacrificing to try to give, other people an opportunity at a better life mm -hmm. and you know what they do with that opportunity that's that's up to them mm -hmm. but I, I know for us uh and i know that for the the guy and girl on the ground their their heart is true i know that we were there with the intent of trying to secure security for a population that to that point was not able to secure it for themselves mm -hmm. so i think there's pride in that of course. Well, it's, it's like the ultimate noble cause when, uh, you know, one way or another, regardless of the political side of it, the actions themselves are are noble in trying to help these people. Right. So I think, I think that that's, that's the ultimately what matters the most, particularly for the guys that are on the ground doing the work, right. Or, or in the air. So that's <laughs> yeah. uh, uh that's terrific. So I only have one, I only have one more question about Afghanistan and Iraq for you. And then I want to move into the civilian side of things. Cause you, you, okay. you, you had been in, uh, you know, 2013 was your last deployment. And then I think you said you retired from the military. Is it 2017? Correct. 2017. Yeah. yeah. I know that was a question, but that wasn't the question I was going to ask. It okay. was, uh, it, you know, because this is a watch podcast, I'd be remiss for not asking during this point in time, what kind of watches are you wearing? Were you a watch guy at this point in time that you were in the military already? Or did that come after? Yeah, I was, uh, I was a watch guy early on just from, uh, James Bond. I was, Roger Moore's watches in the James Bond films mm -hmm. always just completely enamored me, uh, the, just the different things that they would do. And so I had an affinity for watches a, a little bit early on. And, uh, curiously enough, when I deployed to Iraq, I had, uh, and I don't have it anymore. And I actually tried to find it. I was wearing one of the Oakley digital watches. It was almost okay. like a, a black a black rubber and then it had like a silver face on it big numbers uh and i i gave that watch to a one of my apache crew chiefs that i was really close with and really fond of uh and interestingly enough he lives in houston now and i actually called him the other day a guy named chad long and chad chad ended up through pure army chance uh, taking, taking care of, of the helicopter that I flew in Savannah, Georgia, in Iraq, in Germany, in Afghanistan. And then we ended up coming to Houston together for some reason. But anyway, long story short, uh, I gave Chad that watch and I called him the other day. I'm like, Hey man, 
this is going to be a weird question. I said, would you happen to have that shitty Oakley watch that I gave you back in? <laughs> He's like, I remember that watch, but I, I really don't know where it is. I said, yeah, you know, it's 20 years ago. I wouldn't expect you to still have it, but if you run across it, I'll make it worth your while. <laughs> I said, I don't want to be an Indian giver, but if you still happen to have that watch, I would appreciate it. And he said he would look for it, but I hadn't heard back from him. Uh, and then outside of that, I had, uh, gosh, I can go get it real quick. I've still, I've still got it. I've got a G-Shock, a gray G-Shock. Nice. That I, I bought purely for the illuminator mm. aspect of it. I, I needed something that I could read in the dark readily. Um, as, as cool as I love Loom, you know, it's only good for so long. Whereas that illuminator it would illuminate every time you hit the button. Uh, so I still have that G-Shock. Uh, that G-Shock was in Iraq and it also went to Afghanistan. It went to two Afghanistan tours and it it died. And I recently got it resurrected. Um, I'm, I'm proud to say. So I, I still have it. And then uh, my 2000. 12, 13 war watch was, I don't know if you see that or not. That's Bell and Ross. Yeah, that was, I wouldn't say it was a daily wear, but it, it does have, it does have one Afghanistan deployment on it. So between that and what I was doing at the time, I would wear that Bell and Ross. And then I would wear that, that Casio G-Shock. I feel like I need to go get the G-Shock. It's not in my watch box, sadly enough, but I know exactly where it is. <laughs> hey, that's all right. I mean, I know I, I I have one of those little Illuminator ones as well, too. And, and they're they're great little watches. I've had the same Casio Illuminator. All my other G-Shocks have actually crapped out, but this thing I've had and it still works. And I've had it since I think like grade four. I, so I like, took it to the shop and and the, the guy kind of looked at me because the, the watch shop I go to here, he you know, he puts the little velvet tray out and he's got mm. his gloves on. And I'm like, dude, it's not that kind of watch. I said this. He's, and he's looking at it. I, I, I'm like, if you can just bring it back to life and they, they sent it to Casio and that, well, I don't think there's anything they're going to be able to do for it. And they wanted to know if I wanted to replace it. And I'm like, absolutely not. I don't want to replace it. But somewhere in that process, it started working again because they tried to put a battery in it. Mm. I said, oh, there, there's. The, the gasket had had deteriorated to the point and the battery had stayed in it too long. They didn't know if they were going to be able to bring, do anything with it. Uh, but it's, it's got life again. I don't know what they did and they didn't know what they did either, but it started working again. So the magic, uh, the Keebler elves fixed it, I guess. That's right. That's Still awesome. Hanging on to it. That's right on. That's really, really cool. So it, it has got some serious combat on it. It is, it is purely an emotional connection more than an aesthetic connection. Cause it is, it's rough looking. <laughs> That's what it's all about though, man. You can look at that thing and you know, it's been through some shit, right? And you can think you can, it brings back the memories of the stuff that you did in that watch, which I think is so, so cool, man. That's really, really, really neat. So when you, when you transitioned from the military to the civilian side, what did that look like for you? Uh, you know, now you are a, uh, an air ambulance pilot. That's your current role of what you've been doing. And, and what, I guess, what did that transition look like? How did you feel about it? How does it differ from your role in the military? I mean, obviously, air ambulances don't have missiles and turrets and cannons and things like that on them. It'd be kind of interesting if they did, but no, they... Sometimes I wish they did. I'm sure, I'm sure. But the, uh, you know, what is that like for you now? And kind of like, what does that role uh, look like for you? I I tell people that I'm still in transition. (laughs) I know, because if you you do something for 26 years, and I, I think the... I think it was a guy named Matt Best said it, Mm. said it best. Uh, You know, every, 
everything I am and everything I've done and everything I've worked for disappeared overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you're, you're, you're part of a lifestyle and you're part of a community for so long, it, it becomes, and not to mention it's, it's the military, right? So the military having its own levels of predictability and ways of doing things. Uh, so a transit, a transition to civilian life, I think is, is challenging for anybody. So as, as I go into, you know, year six of, of transition, as I say, it still has challenges. You know, I still, some, some things irritate me that don't irritate other people. Uh, mm-hmm. Some things don't bother me at all that, that other people get spun up about. Uh, but long, long story shorter, I, I just decided as I was going through the retirement process that air ambulance would be a really good fit. And it was an opportunity to apply a skill that the Army had given me over the course of 26 years to a, a good purpose. Uh, to still be able to fly, to still be able to be part of a team, uh, to still be able to serve, not necessarily a nation, but serve a community uh, with a skill set. Um, and I had I had opportunities to, to stay in the Apache community as an instructor, as a civilian instructor. I had opportunities to go into to industry and do different things, uh, but it didn't, I guess uh, there was a, a part of me that wanted to prove that I could exist outside of that biosphere. I wanted to, I, I, I didn't want to follow the typical path of just um, staying around the Apache and staying apart. As much as I love the, the army, my army community, the, the Apache community, I, I've got, I've got brothers around the world that I can call right now. And, you know, Hey, how, how soon do you need me there? And, you know, do I need to bring a shovel? <laughs> no questions asked. Don't show up. Um, so I, I, I love that aspect of it, but for, for me, I wanted, I wanted new challenges in retirement. I wanted to write new chapters in the book. So I was particularly drawn to air ambulance. Mm-hmm. And ultimately I wanted to fly air ambulance in Arkansas, but I, I, for, to be with the organization I wanted to be with in Arkansas, I wanted to build some experience. Uh, and so I, I asked myself, all right, where, where is the hardest, busiest, air ambulance work I can get. Houston, Texas, uh, two, two extremely busy airports here, busy airspace, a lot of dynamic flying conditions. Um, and, and we fly IFR here too, which is in instruments in the clouds, which is another aspect. And it's all single pilot. So you've got no co-pilot. Really? It is, wow. It's all single pilot stuff. It, it's you and it's all, it's all on you day, night, goggles, in the clouds, out of the clouds. And I wanted that challenge and I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. And it was when I talked to my wife about it, the, the job was available here and it was going to be about a two to three year plan. And now it's year six. <laughs> so, but we, we are, we are in the process of getting ready to move to Arkansas. So that's, that's what my transition looked like. It was the job that was available. It was the job that appealed to me. And uh, that's, that's why I started getting into air ambulance immediately after army retirement. So you have, um, like you said, it's single pilot. So it's like you and then the medical crew or are you? Correct. The, the way we were structured here at Life Flight, Memorial Hermann Life Flight, we have a, a flight nurse and a flight paramedic that fly in the back. And then I'm up front. We fly the EC-145 Airbus helicopter. Uh, so I am 
100% responsible to get them where they need to be so that they can do the incredible things that they do. And they don't, they don't cross train them at all to be able to assist you in anything to do with being a pilot, like sort of like how they would have like a, like a, a EMS SWAT or something like that, where they would. Yeah, so of... they, they get, they get safety training and they get air, air medical training as it relates to being part of an air crew in terms of watching for obstacles, watching for other aircraft. Okay. Uh, knowing how to pick up on certain things on the radio traffic and you know what that they're they're familiar enough with what I'm doing up front that they can contribute to that and they they overall uh as as a crew resource their their extra eyes and they're um able to assist me in that role but from a, a physical flying standpoint no we're we're mm. sing every aircraft is single pilot mm. and so what sort of scenes would you be responding to as an air ambulance sure so Air ambulance kind of breaks into two different things. You have transfers and, and scene flights. So for scene flights, as, as, as people would anticipate, that's car accidents, uh, people that fall off the roof cleaning their gutters, people that electrocute themselves doing power line work, uh, drink poison, chemical exposure, uh, gunshot wounds, assaults, all of that. Those, those are... Uh, what I equate to the military is the quick reaction missions. Hey, somebody's in contact. We got to get there as quick as possible. Mm -hmm. We don't know where we're going yet, but we got to, we got to head that way. And that's where you end up landing on the two lane road at night. That's where you land in the, you know, the, the gas station parking lot or whatever the case may be. So those are your scene flights. And then we do a lot of transfer work too, to where you're going to an established hospital helipad and you're simply transporting that patient to a higher level of care. Mm -hmm. So for example, here, I might get called to fly from the Baytown airport to uh, a small hospital in Beaumont, Texas. And that okay. patient has, has deteriorated or it, that patient needs a capability at the Texas medical center in Houston that Beaumont, Texas can't provide. Mm -hmm. So they will call us to transfer that patient under the care of the flight nurse and the flight paramedic until we can get them to the higher level of care. So like in, in with regards to the transfer side of things, like the, the role would be essentially to make up for time. Like it would just be faster than going by, by vehicle, obviously and, well, and be, getting there more directly. But when it comes to like responding to scenes, is the reason why an air ambulance might go versus a regular uh, EMS or something like that would just be um, isolation being a factor from like a, a, a trauma care center and, and needing to uh, respond to either an area where they're not accessible by vehicle or like a rural area where they would have to be brought into an urban care center or like so, so all of that applies what you just said all the examples you applied but the the number one overarching factor is speed when it comes mm -hmm. to air ambulance so outside of because there's no traffic jams we're flying in a straight line at 130 knots so the, and especially in a congested area like houston uh traffic is a problem almost 24 hours a day mm -hmm. depending on where you're going and how you're trying to get there so speed being the number one factor the second factor being is our, our helicopter and our med crews have incredible levels of training and equipment on board that your typical ground ambulance and your ground EMTs may not have exposure to because our crews have you know, numerous IV pumps. They have a vent. They have uh, a Lucas device that can provide CPR. They carry blood products. Mm. Uh, we can do specialty flights to where we actually have a respiratory therapist on board. Uh, this, the, 
the capability inside that helicopter and the training that our paramedics and nurses have, sometimes that's the best option versus putting somebody in a ground ambulance and, and sending them by ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, now for the scene flights, we're always going to transport them to a, a level one trauma center because usually the injuries are such on, because the, the on-scene commander, he, he's the one that decides on whether or not they're going to call air ambulance mm-hmm. through his dispatch. So there's that filter level before it even gets to us. So it's because sometimes you, you may have a car wreck and air ambulance isn't involved. They'll send patients by ground. It's, oh, we got one guy, he's got a broken arm. Another one, he's complaining of headaches. We're going to send them by ground to a, a level two center. Uh, but if the on-scene commander gets there and he's like, you know, guys have open compound tib-fib fractures and a lot of bleeding, unconsciousness, things like that. Hey, get me life flight then it goes through our dispatch and then we're notified that way. So different triggers uh, are, result in us being activated. Mm. And so that training or the transition from flying military helicopters to civilian helicopters or, or air ambulance helicopters, what was that like for you specifically as the pilot? Was it um, did you just have to kind of go through like a, a basic training to kind of show them that you could fly a helicopter? Was it like, Hey, you're, here's the keys go enjoy. Or like, how did that kind of work for you? Like, obviously you had the skill and experience flying military helicopters, but how was it to actually transition into flying these, these air ambulances? Yeah. So our training program here, it's structured with, with Czech airmen that are part of the system. And we spend, uh, about three to four weeks daytime and about three to four weeks nighttime. And you go to a base and you are shadowed by a Czech airman that has also done the job. So you're actually with the med crew uh, training and learning the job with somebody watching over you and explaining to you what they're looking for. And uh, hey, this is what to look for at these kind of scene flights. So the, the mechanics of flying the helicopter are are the mechanics of flying a helicopter. Now, I still had to learn new emergency procedures and limitations because I was going to a different type of helicopter, just like uh, you know we talked about earlier as I moved to Arkansas and learned another helicopter. Uh, but that, that training process is, is very specific with our Czech airmen, and then you're evaluated by an FAA check ride before you're released by yourself to be able to go do that work. And the, the main thing that I had to focus on here was the the instrument aspect mm-hmm. because in I I did not typically fly instruments and helicopters in the in the military uh except maybe twice a year for check rides and evaluations. Mm-hmm. So when you come here you don't you don't you don't let weather hamper you. Now I, I tell people I said it's we are we are low weather capable, but we still have to have certain visibility and ceiling requirements even to be able to to apply instruments to be able to fly. So, you know, instead of going to a hospital helipad, I may fly to an airport, do an instrument approach just like a civilian uh, commercial airliner, and then have the ambulance meet me with the patient at an airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of the added capability that instruments gives you in the air ambulance uh, aspect of it. But for the training, the, the main thing I needed to focus on was was learning the instrument phase of it and how they did it here. Mm-hmm. And so with the role you're going to fulfill uh, in Arkansas now, is it any different from the current role you're doing or is it just work? Is it the same role with a different agency? It's, it's still air ambulance. I'll be working with the LifeNet Air 2 out of Hot Springs, Arkansas. It, probably a little slower pace just because mm-hmm. of the 
the geographics involved as opposed to being in Houston, Texas. Uh, but that's that's home for my wife and me. So that's why we're headed up there. Oh, that's wonderful. That's going to be great to kind of be back home and then being able to kind of continue on with this. And right. I think I think a slower pace to a certain degree is something you maybe you've earned at this point in time is being able right, to slow right. down a little bit. I mean, you've explained so much incredible. Uh, well, I, go ahead. I told, I told my mom, I said, there, there's a, there's an attraction to going back as a helicopter pilot and literally serving the community that raised me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I, I thought that was the best way to put it. I, that, that's, that's a draw. In addition to being home to, to be able to continue to do the job at home. That's I, I like that. Yeah, no, that's that's an incredible opportunity, and I'm, it's one that I'm I'm glad that you're you're getting, and one that you've obviously earned, but one that it. <laughs> it, it's great to be able to uh, to be able to do that and and kind of um, yeah focus on on serving the community that you're from originally. I think that's going to be tremendous. Uh, moving out of I think the helicopter talk because I know it's shop talk for you, right? And I and we've, <laughs> we've spent the majority of the podcast uh, talking about that, which I, again I really appreciate all the incredible insight you've shared with all of us, and I've learned a ton just from that alone. But again, we are a watch podcast, so let's talk a little bit about watches now. I know you got a really really cool uh, watch box, which we can talk about entirely in itself. But um, what do you have in your collection? And I guess as you kind of take us through it, can you talk a little bit about where watches started for you, what the passion for them is that drives yeah, you sure. with watches? Yeah. You know, I, I touched on a little bit earlier with, with, I think my, my interest in watches started with, with James Bond, specifically mm. Roger Moore, James Bond. I, I, I didn't remember the, I had to come back, circle back to Sean Connery and his, his Rolex because Roger Moore was my entry point into James Bond and the, mm-hmm. the different Seikos and the Pulsars that he had. And uh, I just, it, it wasn't so much the brand at that point to me was the fact that, you know, he had a watch that he could magnetize and one that had a buzzsaw on the bezel. Mm-hmm. And so that was my initial interest into watches. The, uh, the first watch I had was actually uh, when I was five years old was a, a Mickey mouse watch from Sears that had the, the two legs that dangled yeah. as the as the watch ticked and I got that for Christmas when I was five years old and um, of course I I believed in Santa Claus because I think everybody should um, but that watch was so damn loud when it ticked as a as a five-year-old kid I, I wore it because I got it for Christmas Eve and I I tried to put my pillow over the top of it because I was convinced it was ticking so loud that Santa Claus was going to hear it and he wasn't going to leave anything under the Christmas tree so that was that was my entry point as a five-year-old into watches was that I wish I still had that watch that that Sears uh, Mickey Mouse watch. Uh, after that, I, I was never, you know, financially in a position to have very many nice watches. So I was Casio G-Shocks. And then I mentioned the G-Shock that I took to Iraq and Afghanistan with me. And then um, when I was on my, when I got accepted to flight school, I was, completely enamored with at the time it was called a Seiko flight computer because I don't think they had the name wrestled away from Omega for flight master yet right uh and I I wanted one of those watches so bad I had absolutely no clue what a tachymeter was or how the slide rule worked on it or even what a chronograph did but I just thought it looked great and I thought it'd be a good way to you know to get chicks and tell them that I had been accepted to flight school and good I never did end up getting one of those watches. I know a couple of guys that that, that have them. Um, but as as I joined the military, 
time suddenly becomes very important to you uh, and being on time and, and accuracy. Cause if you're not on time, you're late. So that my, my first watch that I bought military related was purely out of necessity. And I also don't have it. And I wish I did. And it was one of those Timex campers. It was on a great green OD green canvas strap, uh, battery powered, good loom come completely, uh, I don't, I don't I it was a it was a quartz movement uh but it looked it looked mechanical and then I I used it throughout basic training and in the early part of of flight school uh and then I had a a citizen just a digital citizen that I had in flight school um so that was those were my entry points and all of those watches I wish I still had but I don't uh the first the first proper watch aviation watch I bought and I think I've showed this to you before I do still have this one it's just a, a Blue Angels Citizen Navahawk yes yeah 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 okay uh this watch has a lot of sentimental value. I, I got this as a young Cobra pilot in hmm. uh, Colleen Texas in 1994 uh I was a broke W1 but it was the the first quote-unquote pilot watch that I had and the, the that the little bit of history I have with this watch, I, I wore it for a long time. Uh, I was still wearing it off and on in 2002 when Nick Demona, who I mentioned before, he came to our unit in Savannah, Georgia, and I was going to be his instructor pilot. And this was his mom gave him this exact same watch when he graduated flight school. Um, so. Nick, unfortunately, died in a helicopter accident in 2004, and his watch uh, survived the crash, if you will. Nick did not, but his his mom has that same watch, and uh, she's she's holding it for me until she's ready to give it to me. But anyway, long story short, when, when Nick came to the unit, I started wearing this watch again because we joked that as a crew, we would be more efficient if we had matching watches. <laughs> So uh, anyway, so I've got another Navahawk uh, that is not running because it it was a, a crash survivor, uh, but a, a twin for this one that is going to mean a lot to me one of these days when when it when it comes to the collection. It's also kind of similar to that flight computer, mm -hmm. that Seiko flight computer that you were talking about as well, too. Right. Start, it's kind of funny you went for the the Citizen instead of the Seiko in the end, but it varies, kind of has a lot of those same features you were mentioning. Right. I, I liked the Blue Angels look to it. I liked the band. And uh, it was an expensive watch at the time to me. And uh, my my wife and I decided together that I could that I could have that watch. So it was it was a big deal when I was 24 years old and a starving Cobra pilot. Right on. Right on. That's awesome. And then uh, other than that, I've got my my sake. Whoa which is the, the mm. watches of espionage inspired Arabic dial with the so I, <laughs> so I got, so I got to know, like I've, I've kind of followed along with, with watches espionage a little bit and I've chatted with him a couple of times, but like, what is it about that watch specifically that is so, I guess, special? Cause it's not like a limited production watch or anything, right? It's just, it just has that Arabic dial on it. There, I don't think there's anything special about it at all. Other than the, the, the Arabic dials, it's, it's, I think it's kind of a, a closet way to remember extensive service in the middle east mm -hmm. oh, oh it's it's a it's a subtle nod to that kind of service for those of us that have spent a lot of time over there and a lot of sacrificed a lot of our lives over there 
that was my appeal to it. Um, and when I saw it on his, in his Instagram page, I'm like, man, I, I really like that watch. So, uh, I think that was, that was my draw to it. And then when, when I put it on the WOE strap, I knew I was, I was all in. <laughs> he does make some pretty nice straps. I'll give him that. Yeah, right. I've, sure. seen, I've, I've seen them. I've seen people like, uh, trying to like scalp them for like two, two to three times cost. I think I saw a guy trying to sell one for like 300 bucks or something the other day on one of the forums. And I'm like, I don't know how much they cost originally, hopefully not 300 bucks, but it's, it's crazy that the, you know, that guy makes pretty cool stuff and that's a beautiful watch. It's very interesting. Like I just, I see them come up from time to time. And I think that they're, it it is very interesting to have that Arabic dial. I've seen Breitling, I think released a chronomat with an Arabic dial on it as well too, which I thought was really interesting. Um, it's kind of a unique nod to that, you know, the the, ske- the sketchy Breitling thing. And then you also get the Arabic dial going on with it as well too. I don't know. Yeah, if that- and I think he's got the, he's got the Breitling with the Arabic numbers that he, I think was a, he talks about it on his, on his page was the gift from King Hussein. Yeah. He's got, he's got a, he's got a few. Yeah. Yeah, really, really cool pieces that he's got got going on there, and some of those really interesting Arabic dial watches, and it is it is a really cool thing to see. So I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful timepiece as well too, and it's kind of one of those. It's one of those like it's one of those watch nerd pieces. I guess that's what I think it sort of is. It's like if you know, you know, right? right? right, you know? right. Another watch nerd sees that, and they're like, watches of espionage. Exactly. You know? <laughs> People get it right away. <laughs> exactly. And then that's my. That was the Christmas yeah. gift last year. That that was my. I, I finally circled back to James Bond, the the Seamaster, No Time to Die. That's that's probably the the top of my Christmas tree. That is a hell of a Christmas gift, man. I gotta yeah, say, yeah, my wife my wife did me right on that one for sure. That's wonderful, and it sort of it sort of brings so many things together, even just from this conversation. You got the broad arrow, uh, uh, symbology on it. There, you have the uh, James Bond. You have the um british watch i guess it's, i guess it's a swiss watch but it's meant to be sort of inspired by british watches and by james bond right. as a character and you know like you have a lot of really cool influences uh going on in that watch it sort of really culminates the collection all in one piece as it were right a little, little bit of controversy with the broad arrow on that one that i i, I won't get into it the uh Russell Overt, the mad watch collector. I, I think he captures my feelings on the broad arrow on the Omega Seamaster. I'm like, eh, it might be a little bit of fraud perpetrating there. So <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, I suppose you're right. I never I never really thought about it in that sense, but you are yeah, I mean, technically they're not it's not really a British watch, so I get what you mean. Well, well as 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 far as what Nor Omega, to me, that's the most unique Seamaster ever made. I think it's mm-hmm. got a great look to it. It's got it's it it's subtle tributes to the British British military with the with the broad era. So I'm I'm not I'm not butthurt about it, but it, I don't know that in terms of broad era application the, that they have the rights like CWC and Vertex and those mm-hmm. guys do. Mm-hmm. Speaking of CWC, <laughs> do do have a CWC SBS inbound? It's uh it is it is somewhere between here and England. What's uh what prompted that that choice? Because it is an awesome awesome watch. You know, it's it's again back to the 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 British military history, uh, and becoming friends with with some of those guys on Instagram. I've, I've become a bit of a Royal Marine Commando fanboy, mm. um, and it's I, I intend to put that on 
the the regimental Royal Marine Commando strap, and it, it's kind of a tribute piece. And I I talked to Adam a little bit about it. I said, hey, look, I don't want this to come across as one of those jackasses that's pretending to be a Navy SEAL. I'm almost I'm getting this piece as almost a, a tribute piece to having worked on with with British uh, soldiers on different coalitions. And we've certainly chewed a lot of dirt together with them down in southern Afghanistan. And uh, I w- when I think back to the fact that, you know, the, the, the British weren't attacked on 9-11, but yeah. they have, they didn't hesitate in any way, shape or form to take up arms with us in both Iraq and Afghanistan and the sacrifices that they've made. That, they had, well, they meant a lot to me. So. They, had, they, had the, they had the bus bombings and all that, though, as well. Right. Like they had the the big uh, the lorry bombings and the uh, the subway bombings and all that. I think right. that that prompted that was their version of their 9-11, I guess, as it were. So I just I, I admire the fact that they have. They have never hesitated to to join us in what we feel are noble causes. Uh, so I, I decided I needed to pick up the CWC SBS and and put it on a proper strap. Um, and this this AV8 I have is, is also a kind of a tribute piece to the. It's got the Zulu Alpha uh, mm. Sang. Is it six? It's the six eleven Sangin strap, which is it, it's another one of those. If you know, you know. Mm-hmm. Very kind of cool. Piece I bought it's for that district down in in southern Afghanistan where we've chewed a lot of dirt together down in there. Ah, that's awesome. Those are some really, really, really cool pieces, and it's, it's nice that everything sort of has like some history or significance to your service, to experiences you've had, or to just sort of um, some of the influence that you've had in watch collecting over the years. Were there any other pieces in your collection you wanted to share? Oh, uh, just or what about the box itself as well? The only other one, this this is, the, I guess, my first, uh, high, it was high-end to me at the time. It's just, a, it's a Tissot T-Touch, not fancy to anybody, but when I when I was got promoted to W4, I, this, the special thing about this watch is I actually bought it in Switzerland, and uh, I was there with my wife, and my, my then tiny son was on my back in a backpack, and then uh, my wife's in-laws were with us. Mm. So that was it's it was more to commemorate a promotion as well as a, a trip that I have a, a, a fond memory of when I bought that to sew. And then for the watch box, I'll, I'll see if I can hold it up. You know, I, I was a follower Friday on Watch and Country's page, and I think he posted a picture of this box and it, it, it kind of went viral. So the watch box is maybe wow. too close. That's wild. helicopter inspired to. To include warning labels. <laughs> That's wicked. And he, he rigged it to hold my my wedding bands on one side, and then your day-to-day watches, you can hang on these uh, anodized handles over here on this side. Oh, that's super smart. That's really interesting. Put put my name on it and some some typical Apache warning stuff on it. So really, really well done. I was I was appreciative of, of him coming up with that. Yeah, that's a really cool piece. That was a friend of yours that made that. Correct. Yeah, yeah. A friend of mine named Steve Gray, who was a who was a Kiowa warrior pilot, retired, and then he flew air ambulance for a little while, and then uh, decided to 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 get into to making different things. And he is as as of late, he is a an accomplished knife maker in addition to making things like that. So, right on, right on. That's so cool, man. Really, really cool. I, I think I showed this to you earlier. Oh, 
I'll hold it up again. I don't know if you're YouTube in this or if this is just audio. <laughs> sure. Yeah. No audio, video, all that stuff. Yeah. It's a beautiful knife. I was going to say like, it's, it's one thing to, you know, take up a blacksmithing and, you know, forge out a, a blade of some kind or something like that, but it's a whole other uh, kettle of fish to, um, you know, get into making folding knives and, and then making good ones as well too. I think a lot of people go into making folding knives. It kind of ends up, you know, feeling like a gas station special, but right, right. you know, it's a bit to make nice folding knives. You got to really know what you're doing. And that, that looks like a beautiful, beautiful piece. He does. He does incredible work. That's terrific. 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 Well, you know, you've, you've shared so much uh, insight and so many stories and experiences with us and, and kind of given us a really good look at like who you are as a person, your histories, and, and then the, the watches you collect and why, you know, and I want to thank you so much for that. It's been incredible chatting with you for the last couple hours about all that. The, the one last question that I ask, and I ask a lot of my guests this, especially ones that have done so much and, and have so much experience like you have, is, you know, if you were to talk to a younger version of yourself or just a younger person who is getting started in life, whether they're that that 20 year old who's in in university and they're trying to figure out what they want to do or an 18 year old coming out of school who's trying to figure out what direct what direction they want in life what would be like that one piece of advice that you've learned or that one wisdom that you've learned that you would want to impart to them that you think would help them in their journey yeah sure i think that if i could go back and talk to the younger version of myself just it it, it costs you absolutely nothing to be quiet mm. and listen to people around you and then I'll I'll stack that on top of a quote from Robin Olds's father. Robin Olds was a famous American fighter pilot. His father told him, he said, Robbie, have something to bring to the table before you proclaim your worth. Mm-hmm. And I, there, I think there's a lot of truth to that. If I could go back and say, hey, just, just be quiet, observe, be patient, and and earn your spot. Earn your spot. And it it I think there's so much to be learned just from listening to others around you and being respectful of, of people that are, are doing what you aspire to do. And that's, I think that's the beauty of the army is you've got so many, at least I hope it's still that way in the army. There's so many great opportunities for mentorship. If you just present yourself as, as a humble person willing to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that too often today in, in youth, youth thinks they need to start out making six figures and they deserve the same respect as the guy who's been in the company for 15, 20 years. And just because they've got a degree from wherever, uh, I would, I would just encourage younger people to be patient and be prepared to, to earn the respect. And then the rewards that come with that will come with time. If you just just be quiet, listen, and allow yourself to be mentored by people that know the job that you're trying to aspire to do. Mm-hmm. No, that's, I mean, that's all incredibly <laughs> apt, apt advice that I think would serve a lot of people very, very well. Um, if they're going into any career, or any career path that they want to explore, you know, being respectful, you know, I, I remember, um, kind of just to summarize what you said about listening and things like that i remember a famous quote from judge judy of all people (laughs) which was which was yeah god gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason (laughs) (laughs) listen twice as much as you speak 
And I think that that's, and I think that that, that honestly, it's something I, I, that rings in my mind once in a while when I feel like I'm talking too much, it's like, shut up and listen. You've talked enough, at least listen twice as long as you just finished speaking and you might actually pick something up of value. And I think that that's incredibly, incredibly true. Um, and, it's, and that is, that is, unfortunately, I think that is sort of one of the things about youth is that mistake that you're describing. It's just, it's just one of those things that comes with youth. Oh, yeah. Wind, I'm, the, I'm, I'm guilty of it. <laughs> well, the way me as am I, as, as you were saying that, I'm like, man, that's so true. You know, and, and it's just like, as you get, as you get older, I think that's just something that comes with wisdom. And man, if we can, if we can figure out this next generation, if they can learn those skills ahead of time and, and they can have that coming out and going into the real world, that the world will definitely be a better place for it. So it's very exciting to think about, uh, you know, someone taking that advice to heart, but Hey, maybe someone listening, you know, that's what they need to hear. Right. You never can tell. I never can tell. There's, there's no replacement for personal responsibility. There seems to be a whole lot of lack of personal responsibility in the world these days. <laughs> well, I, I am 100% agree, but that is not the topic of this conversation, <laughs> at least not while we're recording. So uh, nonetheless, Rob, it's been incredible chatting with you. I've enjoyed it so much. I, I appreciate all of the, again, all the experience you've shared with me, the stories you've told, um, just giving your insights into things. It's, it's been absolutely invaluable. And I think it's going to make for a fantastic episode. If people want to reach out to you and, and follow up with you after this episode, or they want to engage with some of your content, because you do have some really great content on Instagram as well too. Where can they find you? How can they chat with you? Yeah, I appreciate that. I am at Purdy302 on Instagram. And uh, I have I have enjoyed Instagram immensely. I, I joined it begrudgingly. And I, I will say that... <laughs> Instagram has been probably better than any paid therapy anybody could ever find. Just the communities that I've been able to be a part of. And I, I, I will I will sit and do a fireside chat with Commando Sundials and I will argue with anybody that that is better than any paid therapy you're ever going to get from a professional. I, I, I love that guy. <laughs> He's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, Adam's a fun guy to, to chat with. We had a great time when we did our episode as well, too. I mean, that guy can just talk and talk and talk, and he's hilarious as well, yep. too. Good he's, dude. He's a really good dude. Really good dude. All right, well, I'll make sure I drop your Instagram page in the description box below. Uh, likewise, for myself, anyone who has any questions, comments, feedback, feel free to shoot me an email at ricoswatchespodcast at gmail.com. Additionally, if you want to follow along with the show, sort of at its central hub, you can give it a follow at uh, Instagram as well, too. Just at Rico's Watches Podcast, all one word. Um, additionally, if you enjoy this episode and many of my other episodes in an audio medium and you would like to enjoy them in a video medium, uh, you can head over to the Rico's Watches Podcast YouTube channel. Just make sure to like, subscribe, hit the bell icon, all that YouTube stuff because it's YouTube and you got to do that stuff. So thank you so much, Rob. It's been incredible chatting with you. I really look forward to uh, chatting with you again. And, and I hope that we can do that again in the near future. And you have a, you have a, you have a spot on my show anytime you want to come on and tell more stories or talk about whatever. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. That's a good time. Right on. You take care. You have yourself a wonderful afternoon. All right. We'll see you, bud. Bye-bye.